Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock worship sermon. I am Stephen Azera, the teaching pastor here at Calvary Baptist Church. During the 11 o'clock service, we are going through 1 Samuel. And this morning we are in chapter 14. We will read and then examine verses 31 through 46. The scripture says, They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Tumen. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Our text this morning is the conclusion of the Israel-Philistine battle. This story began back in chapter 13 when King Saul took the initiative 
and advanced towards a Philistine garrison and eventually took control of it. The Philistines respond with an army that numbered the sand on the seashore and Israel's army subsequently hid. They were terrified. But without informing his father, Jonathan and his armor bearer secretly advanced toward the Philistines. And their plan works. The Philistines are overwhelmed. They quickly lose men in the fight and they flee the garrison. The scripture even says that God caused great confusion in the land. And the Philistines even turned on each other. In order to get maximum benefit of a victory, the enemy's camp had to be completely overtaken. Either the army had to be routed far enough that they abandoned the land, or they were executed. The purpose was for the victor, victors, uh, victorious army to uh, gain control of the land, complete control of the land. And this process of either executing the entire enemy, forcing them flee far enough so they'll never come back, is an exhaustive task. And Saul's army is already distressed. Now they have to muster more strength for this even serious battle. Saul refuses to give them rest. He even swears an oath that if any member of his army eats food, that soldier will be cursed. Saul will execute him. He will hang him on a tree. As an example, what happens to those who disobey the king's orders? Well, guess who breaks the king's oath? His son, Jonathan the hero, and the entire army is stunned. And they're also concerned because they think Saul is going to stay true to the vow and that he's going to actually execute his son. But Jonathan isn't worried. In fact, Jonathan blames his father. He says, my father has brought us this trouble. We are only in this position because of my father's foolish vow. If he would have allowed us to eat, we would have overtaken the enemy by now. And the army is motivated. They're inspired by Jonathan. And even though they're exhausted, the scripture says they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon. So they pushed the army 17 miles south. And the scripture says that they pounced on the spoils. They, they took over the land of the Philistines. They, they took their sheep, they took their oxen, and they slaughtered them on the ground. Now that the battle has lasted past the evening, it's technically the next day. Saul's men are no longer under the oath. They're able to eat freely. But remember, at this point, Saul doesn't know that his son Jonathan has already broken the oath. According to scripture, the men are so hungry that they butcher the sheep and oxen without waiting for the blood to drain from the body. And so they eat the blood along with the meat. This is a significant sin. God has always forbidden his people from eating meat with the blood. 
Leviticus 17, verses 9 and 10. If any one of the houses of Israel, any stranger who lives in the land with them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and I will cut him off from the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the blood was reserved for sacrifices that were used to atone for sins. God placed a significant value on the blood. The blood, the life of that sacrifice was the atonement for their sin. And so the blood signified that the sacrifice lost its life. The substitute lost its life. Although they were allowed to live, that substitute died. Saul's desire is to pursue the Philistines. Remember, they've gone 17 miles south to Ajalon. Saul wants to go there and he wants to completely plunder them, leave nothing. And his army, now that they've eaten, they have no issue with it. But before they pursue the Philistines, the priest intervenes and he says, we should draw near to God first. We should, we should seek God and, and see if this is God's will for us. Typically, when the priest wanted to inquire of the Lord, he would consult the Urim and the Tumen. These were two stones that the priest kept in the breastplate of the priestly garments. What's interesting about these two stones is that the Bible doesn't go into detail uh, exactly how the Lord would reveal his will through these two Stones. It's a mystery. The Bible is silent to how the process worked. But here's what I think. I think the Urim and the Tumen, two stones, each stone had a letter carved in it, uh, uh, maybe the, that corresponded with the yes or no, or uh, the two stones were two different kind of stones, and the, the Urim was a yes, and the Tumen was a no. The priest would pray. He would ask the Lord to reveal his will through these two stones. The priest would take the stones out of the, po of the pocket of his garments, and God would cause something supernatural to happen with one of the stones. And whichever stone displayed the miracle, that was God's choice. What was the miracle? We don't know. But if I had to guess, I would say something like maybe the light or the sun shone on one of those stones and they transmitted a beautiful array of colors like a diamond would. And the people were mesmerized by it. Wow, look how beautiful this is. And whichever stone did that, that was God's choice. So in this particular instance, the priest would have the stones in the, in the garments of the, the pocket of his garments. And, and he would say to the Lord, Lord, if you want us to proceed after the Philistines, may a miracle happen to the Urim. Or if you don't want us to do it, may, uh, you know, give something through the Tumen, something supernatural. That's what I think what would happen. 
But again, that's all conjecture because the scripture is silent. So no one knows. But something obviously happened and it was obvious, whatever it was, because the Israelites knew without a doubt that God spoke to them through the process of the Urim and the Tumen. But this time the Lord does not answer. The scripture says, when Saul inquired of God, shall I go after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? The Lord did not answer him. So since God did not answer, the king believes that there is something that happened to repel God from the camp, that his presence was no longer there. And the king thinks it's sin, someone's sinned. And he asked his army, did, did anyone sin? Even if it was my son, Jonathan, please tell me. And no one wants to give up Jonathan. He's the hero. But we don't want to give him up, so they stay silent. And so then Saul consults the Lord through the Urim and the Tumen. He puts him and Jonathan on one side. He puts the army of Israel on the other side. The Lord chooses his side. And then to eliminate either him or his son, Saul asked the Lord again, which one violated the oath? And the Lord supernaturally revealed through the Urim that Jonathan was the one who did it. And Saul says to his son, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan tells him the truth. I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I'll die. He's honest. He tells his father the truth. Let me say this real quick. God requires his people to be truth tellers. The Lord detests lying lips, but he loves people who are trustworthy. Proverbs 12, 22. According to Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, uh, sinners who practice lying, they will be sent to the lake of fire. Why is lying so bad? Why, why is lying such a great sin? Why does God hate lying? Because if God's image bearers are known liars, the image that we reflect is also dishonored. Our own reputation isn't dishonored. It's more than that. God's reputation is also dishonored. That's, that's how it works. Whether we like it or not, when we sin and we call ourselves Christians and we sin, God is dishonored. God has given us a specific image that we should live like, that we should reflect. And he's that image. And lying dishonors that image, just like any sin does. It's the same when your children do something that's bad, right? It, it brings dishonor to the parents. Well, I, I can't believe you, you raised him like that. And parents, well, we, we didn't raise him that way. Think about all the... Uh, the children in the news that get in trouble for, uh, you know, doing, committing crimes, right? The parents always say, well, we didn't raise him that way because they know that dishonor comes to them as well. When citizens of a country, they behave in wicked ways. The government is dishonored. 
It's the same principle with God and his people. When we live wicked lives, we represent God. We are his image. So we reflect poorly upon the Lord. Remember what the Lord said to Israel in the Old Testament? Because of you, the Gentiles blaspheme my name. Because of the way you act, because of how you are, it, it dishonors me. That's why lying's bad. God is truth. He's a source of all truth. And when his people lie, it dishonors his reputation. Well, what about the Hebrew midwives and and Rahab, right? That's always the rebuttal. But what about the Hebrew midwives? According to Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh ordered for the Hebrew midwives to kill the Hebrew babies once they were born. The midwives refused to obey Pharaoh and they did not kill the babies. When they were questioned, the midwives lied. But here's something to remember about the midwives. Their lie didn't save the Hebrew babies. Not killing the Hebrew babies saved the Hebrew babies. And God didn't bless the midwives because of their lie. The Lord blessed them because they refused to kill the babies. That was the righteous act that they did. Saving the Hebrew babies was the righteous thing that they did. That was the thing that was commendable. That was the thing that was rewarded, not what they told Pharaoh. The same can be said of Rahab when she hid the Israelite spies from the Canaanites. The Bible never commends Rahab for lying. It commends her for having the faith to hide the spies. And so scripture commends her for her faith, for her protecting the spies, not for her lying to her countrymen. But maybe we're looking at the Hebrew midwives and Rahab, their situation from, a, from the wrong perspective. Maybe they didn't lie. Because sometimes concealing the truth from wicked men isn't always wrong. It isn't always lying. When the Bible says to love your neighbor, that duty includes protecting them from evil. It, it includes refusing to give all the information to those who hate them. So concealing information that would stop injustice isn't lying. You know, wicked people do not possess the right to have the truth told to them or the whole truth told to them. Wicked people don't have that right to have all the information. So concealing the truth from them isn't always lying because we're not always obligated to tell all the truth or freely give out sensitive information to those who would do harm with it. Think about the Nazi Germany, when they went around uh, the country looking for Jews to liquidate the Jewish ghetto. And many, many men and women hid the Jews because uh, they loved their neighbor and they didn't want the Germans to come uh, take them away. Hiding them wasn't lying. Concealing that information from the Nazi Germans 
wasn't lying. It was a righteous thing to do to hide the Jews. So maybe we're looking at the Hebrew midwives and Rahab from the right angle. But maybe they were not and they did lie. Even if we consider what they did was lying, even if that's what happened, they lied. God never reward them for lying. God blessed them for what they did, which was protect the Hebrew babies and to hide the spies. Back to Jonathan. He doesn't lie to his father. He is honest. He reveals what he did. He ate the food when his father gave orders to not eat anything. Jonathan doesn't try to save his life. Why? Because he's a righteous man who has faith in God and he knows that God would intercede for a righteous man. Jonathan has enough faith in the Lord to know that he tells the truth to his father that if God wants to save him, God can save him from this situation. And Jonathan's technically innocent because he didn't know about his father's oath. When Jonathan ate the food, no one told him beforehand, hey, don't do that. Because remember, Jonathan was away from his father when his father made that foolish vow. But nevertheless, Jonathan could have said that. He could have said, hey, I wasn't around when you made that oath. But he doesn't. He knows that God could intervene and save him from death. God is good and the judge of all, the good and the just judge of all the earth, and he will do what is right, and he will vindicate the righteous. And that is exactly what God does here. Saul's ready to have Jonathan killed. But the men of Saul's army intervene, and they say, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. Saul was so eager to set himself in the right and gain God's favor that he was determined to even have his son put to death. The irony is that without Jonathan's heroism, there will be no victory. Many Israelites are alive today because of him. But in a beautiful turn of events, the men that Jonathan saved now save him. People will look at this story and they will question God's presence. How, where's God at in all this? You know, it was the men who saved Jonathan, not, not God. Uh, the same people who questioned God's presence and saving Jonathan from being executed by his father would also question the Lord's presence in the book of Esther. But we all know that although the book of Esther doesn't list God's name in the entire book, he's still present for it. Everything's going according to his plan. <clears throat> but according to the men of Israel's army, this entire episode has been orchestrated by God. They say Jonathan has been a part of God's plan in verse 45. God has been behind everything. Saul is ashamed, guys. His entire army defends Jonathan. None of them, none of them picks up the sword and runs it through Jonathan for their king. They defend Jonathan and Saul just walks away. The scripture says in verse 46, then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines. He just went home. 
What do you think that trip home was like in the mind of this king? Do you think maybe Saul is questioning his ability to lead Israel? His men just chose Jonathan over him. His army, right? A nation's army supports their king, right? He's the commander in chief. But they choose Jonathan over him. Saul, at least the bare minimum, must be questioning whether his army would have at least done this for him, right? That's the bare minimum. He has to be questioning, would my army do this for me? If my life was in peril, like my sons, would, would, they, would they do what they did for him, for me? I think the king heads home in agony. I think he's doubting his relationship with God. I think he's doubting his confidence in leading the nation of Israel. And as we see in the coming weeks, this is a downward trajectory. His life is going to get worse. It's over for him soon. Before we we close our study this morning, I want to address two final things from our text. First, I want to address briefly what we do if our prayers go unanswered. Remember in our text that after the priest prayed for God to reveal if Israel should pursue the Philistines, God didn't answer. So practically for us, what do we do if God delays in answering our prayers? And this answer is not profound. It's really simple, but it's important. So what do we do if God is delaying in answering our prayers? We continue to pray and we continue to live according to God's will that he's already revealed. Christians are responsible to live according to God's will. We are not responsible to live according to God's mysteries. We are responsible to live according to what God has already revealed. And in the case when God has not revealed the answer to our prayer, we continue to pray, but we also continue to live according to what God has already revealed. That's the answer. Well, Pastor Stephen, we're, we, my, my wife and I have been praying about this for a long time, about this new job. God has not opened that door yet. What do we do? You continue to pray and you continue to work the job that you have. You continue to obey what God has already revealed. Continue to follow the scripture. God has revealed to us in the scripture his perfect will. Continue to follow that. Until God answers your prayer. Continue to pray, but continue to live according to God's revealed will. The last thing I want to address is the blood of the sacrifice that Saul's army mixed with the meat. The scripture teaches us that the blood of sacrifices serve a great purpose and therefore the blood cannot be consumed. Under the old covenant, The blood from animal sacrifices symbolized the blood of Christ and the sacrifice that he made for sinners on the cross. Under the old covenant, animal sacrifices were very prominent in the life of Israel. 
You can trace animal sacrifices all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when the Lord provided Adam and Eve with animal skins to wear. Genesis chapter 4, the Lord accepted Abel's offerings of the first fruit of his flocks, so they were slaughtered before the Lord. In Genesis chapter 8, Noah performed animal sacrifices. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they performed animal sacrifices. So did Job. And then when we get to the book of Exodus, animal sacrifices become a theme of the Old Covenant. The Lord tells Pharaoh to let his people go. Why? So that they can make sacrifices to him in the wilderness. And then on the night of the Exodus, God saves his people by the death of the lamb. The blood smeared over the door. And then in the book of Leviticus, God gives a written set of instructions to Israel concerning animal sacrifices. Obviously, the ele elephant in the room when we talk about Old Testament animal sacrifices is how can the blood of an animal forgive sins? That's the elephant in the room. Because in reality, the blood of animals cannot forgive sins. And the people of God knew this. They knew that these animal sacrifices and the blood that was shed could not atone for their sins. They knew that the blood of a bull could not take away their sins. And they knew this because they continuously performed the sacrifices year in and year out. If the blood of the animals could forgive them of their sins, there would be no need to continuously do it. So the people of God under the old covenant knew that the blood of bulls or the blood of an animal cannot forgive them of their sin. So the people of God under the old covenant had faith that God would send a substitute who would atone for their sins. And that's how they had their sins forgiven. They knew that these animal sacrifices that were done in front of them was a, was a, was a, a foreshadow of a greater sacrifice with a greater blood, a greater atonement for sins, a greater substitute. And they just had faith that God would send him, that God would send that sacrifice, that God would be true to his word and he would redeem his people. He would save them from their sins. And so they had faith that this one sacrifice would come and make atonement for them. And according to scripture, this greater substitute, this greater sacrifice with a greater atonement for their sins was Jesus Christ, and he would accomplish this on the cross. On the cross, Christ offered himself to God in our place. He bore our sin in judgment, and thus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he delivers us from that sin and judgment and reconciles us to God. So all those Old Testament sacrifices symbolized what Jesus did. They were a foreshadow. They were symbolic. They were anticipatory of what was actually coming when Christ would come and offer himself on our behalf for our sins. And that's why the blood was precious under the Old Covenant. And this is why the people were forbidden from consuming it.
because it's a foreshadow of the great sacrifice. And dishonoring that blood would be dishonoring the works of Christ. 